I'm going to read from Philippians chapter four and verse four, very familiar verses. But listen carefully to the last verse that I'll read as I read verse nine. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So initially Paul is saying he wants us to have minds that are captured by the wonderful things that God is doing and the wonderful things that he is in his person. We give thanks for what he does. We praise him for who he is. And as we reflect on that, our life is a life that is marked by rejoicing and thanksgiving. And in that, of course, we uncover in ourselves the fountainhead of God's presence within us, and that peace pervades our being and covers our circumstances and touches every part of our life and guards our hearts and minds. And then Paul goes on to say, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So he's uncovering the fountainhead of peace. That peace guards our inner life of our heart and our mind. And that means that we can focus in the right direction. Life in general is really governed by where we attend, where we where we focus, where we, where we look to as we consider our life. Where is it that we're looking to? And as we look to that place, where is it we're going to? One of the things that you learn in, in various different skills like driving or skiing or playing golf, wherever you look, that's probably where you'll go. And so Paul is wanting, to, wanting us to really attend to the focus of our life. And he's saying the focus of our life should be the things that God is doing around us that could be considered true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. These things, now that our mind is pervaded with peace, these things can fill our minds because the atmosphere of peace only is, is able to enjoy and, and entertain and encourage such thoughts to, to emerge and to remain. And then finally, so these are the final words of Paul to the first church that he planted in Europe, the church in Philippi. Verse nine, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. There's a dynamic 
to what it is that Paul is wanting to get us into. Now, once he has given us a way of understanding how our inner life is governed, he wants us to know how our outer world can be guided. The inner world is governed by peace and by the focus of God's purpose in our life. That's how our inner life is governed. The compass needle, if you like, of our life is always being drawn into the direction of the magnetic north that is Jesus. That's the, that's the compass bearing of our inner world, of our inner life. But then as our inner life, as our inner world is drawn inexorably towards Jesus and all that he's doing, all that's true and noble and praiseworthy and excellent, so our outer life is being guided by the conditions of discipleship. Whatever you have learned, says Paul, whatever you've learned, the word learned there is drawn from the same word that we, that we translate as disciple, mathetes. It's the, it's the word that speaks about the pupil, the student, the disciple. So Paul is saying, finally, Having got all of this inner world settled, I want, you to, I want you to now understand how it is that having settled your inner world, you can begin to be guided in your outer behavior, in the things that you, that you do, in the things that you say, in the ways that you interact with other people. Whatever you have learned, in whatever ways you have been discipled. Now, obviously, these people are the first Christians in Europe. The households of Lydia and the Philippian jailer were the first house churches in Europe. With Paul's ministry, there were obviously others that were planted at other, other times, uh, probably just after Pentecost when those that were converted in Jerusalem uh, during Pentecost were scattered back to their homelands and their home territories. But certainly in terms of intentional mission where a missionary goes to a new location, according to the record of the New Testament scriptures, this is the first church of Paul's ministry in Europe. And those first two house churches were the house church of Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And probably by now, there are significantly more. And he's speaking to these first believers and the generation of believers uh, after that first uh, generation of disciples. And he's saying to them, I want you to understand that these things are the final things that I want you to attend to and remember. Whatever you have, whatever you have been discipled in... From me, whatever you've been discipled in from me, whatever you've received or heard or seen in me, put into practice. The King James Version has whatever you've heard, whatever you've seen, do. Interesting, I've got my, I've got my iPad here. It, it falls into a very nice little triplet of words Paul is saying it's about hearing 
It's about seeing. It's about doing. Whatever you've, whatever you've been discipled in, whatever you've been, whatever you've been embracing, receiving, recognizing, understanding, and as you've been doing that by seeing and hearing, then make sure you do it. Now, of course, this goes right back to the words of Jesus as he gives the parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 7. The two builders, the wise builder, the foolish builder. The foolish builder hears and sees. Jesus says, the foolish builder who builds on sand, whose house is destroyed in the storm, is a person that listens to my words. Well, we all know that, that listening is, of course, a broad description for the means by which people entertain and engage information. And we know that for the majority of people, much of that is not only what they're hearing, but also what they're seeing. So what is it that you're receiving? Well, Jesus says there are some who receive and they build their house on sand. And then there are some who receive who build their house on the rock. And the difference between the two is that the wise builder receives and puts into practice. And so Paul is saying here, this is my final word. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he had in his mind the final word of Jesus in that absolutely definitive sermon, that definitive teaching of Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe, maybe that was what it was that was going through his mind as he said this, because it was the final word of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, the amazing things in the Sermon on the Mount. Consider the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. Remember that if you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, be sure that you're not carrying a log in your own eye. These amazingly all-consuming, eye-catching, heart-capturing images, parables, and visions, they all lead up in this most marvelous of sermons to the final metaphor, to the final parable of the wise and foolish builder. And obviously, people who have been trained in the Old Testament scriptures to understand that the, that the wise person is the person that they look to be and they long to be. The wise person is the person they look for and they call them rabbi. The wise person is the epitome of what it means to be a faithful follower of God through the Old Testament scriptures, all of the great saints of the Old Testament, both men and women, are the wise ones. And so when Jesus says, there's a wise builder and a foolish builder, of course they expect the results of the foolish builder to be catastrophic. And they expect the results of the wise builder to be wonderful and stable and strong and faith-filled. 
And Jesus says, the way I define wisdom is that I define wisdom as the one who hears and puts into practice. Now in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature as we call it, some of the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, these, these books of garnered wisdom, the curated understanding of the ages, over and over again you see this phrase, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus tells us what the fear of the Lord is. We're, we're delivered from all of the speculation as to what that might mean because we imagine with some trepidation that the fear of the Lord must be something that's pretty awful because it sounds pretty trepidatious, doesn't it? But the truth is that Jesus reinterprets what the fear of the Lord is because he tells us what the wise man is like. The wise man is the person who hears and puts into practice. Therefore, to be one who fears the Lord, in other words, to be one who respects the Lord, to be one who honors the Lord, to be one who looks to the Lord as the guide of their life, the one who fears the Lord is the one who hears the word and puts it into practice. That's what it means to be the wise person. Now, all of that is what Jesus was leading towards in the Sermon on the Mount. And all of this that we've just been reading is what Paul is leading to at the end of this letter to the first church in Europe. Finally, finally, he wants us to be certain that everything that we've learned, everything we've received, whatever it is that we've heard or seen, we put into practice. Because without practice, there's no completion to the process of the formation of discipleship. We're not a disciple unless we do. Up until then, we may be an interested participant. We may be someone who you could consider as a person who's interested in the information and the facts. But a faith-filled follower is someone who hears and puts into practice. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. Make sure that you put it into practice. So, hear, see, do. Very simple analysis using the triangle, the up, the in, and the out. And of course, when we, when we look at here, we're looking at the necessary information, info. When we see the word see, we look at imitation. And when we think of do, of course, it's us learning how to put in things into practice in our own lives. We're talking about innovation. Not novel innovation that means it's a different kind of Christianity, but simply an application of what it is that we understand the role of a disciple is within the circumstances of our own life.
So that's, um, that's pretty straightforward. And of course, hearing gives us a sense that what we're hearing is a word from God, how he's communicating with us. We're receiving from him. The seeing tells us that imitation is all about our engagement with the relationships of other disciples that we see around us and, frankly, other people that we see around us because that's going to be the inward dimension of our life. And doing is all about taking what it is that we received and learned, taking what it is that we've seen and heard, and doing it among people who, as yet, perhaps, have never seen that particular revelation of God expressed in the people with whom they have life. So, there's your little first tool that I'd share with you. But if we were to take it further and ask ourselves the question, okay, there's, there's the basic teaching, there's the basic outline. Anybody can remember, hear, see, do. How do we... How do we kind of drill down into it and understand the mechanisms of this foundational issue of what it means to imitate what it is that we see? Well, to do this, uh, I just began to think about the square. Because Paul is talking about learning... And he talks about learning as something that looks like hearing, receiving, seeing, and doing. Now, again, many of you will know the leadership square. And really, uh, what I see Paul doing here is giving a pattern or a process that can be, if you like, broken down, analyzed, understood in its basic components. If you're going to be a learner, if you're going to be a disciple, there are particular things that need to take place. You need to be hearing the Word of God taught to you. And in hearing it, you need to learn that the process of receiving is the process of assimilating what you're hearing by integrating what you're hearing into the very fabric of your life. But of course, to do that, you're going to need not only words, but actions in the ones or from the ones that are teaching you. So that what they're saying, you can see demonstrated in what it is that they're doing. And so the, the hearing and the receiving really takes place in the context of also seeing what it is that the person means by the way that they live out the particular teaching that they're giving you. And on the basis of the hearing, receiving, and seeing, you can do. Now, if I was, um, if I was just to kind of think this through carefully with you, I'd remind you of some of the basic components of what it means to be a person taking another person through the process of discipleship in the same way that Jesus took his first disciples through the process of discipleship. 
the disciples at the very beginning are, of course, listening to what it is that Jesus is saying. But it's not just what he's saying with his lips. They're recognizing that this is a person to emulate, a person to, to follow, a person to, to begin to pattern their lives upon. But they begin with this basic position of all learners, which is unconscious incompetence. Let me just erase that little bit there. Yeah, good. In, oh dear. Thank you for that. Incompetence. So when you start out, you're unconsciously incompetent. You begin driving. My son began driving. He passed his test. He thought he was competent. He was unconsciously incompetent. His very first act as a new driver at the age of 15 and a half in Arizona was to take his mother's car and reverse it into my car, damaging both of them. He hadn't even got onto the road. He definitely hadn't got onto the highway. It was an absolute disaster. He walked back into the house and said, you'll never guess what I've done. Tears running down his face. I wondered whether you'd ever get behind the driving wheel again. But it's a, just a basic recognition. So many of us have got similar stories. I've got countless stories of the beginning of a process being a beginning of unconscious incompetence. The first disciples really were massively incompetent at being disciples. They didn't know what they were doing. The best that they could do was crowd control, and they weren't very good at that. So here's, here's the beginning of the process. And then, of course, the next stage is that you become conscious. Wish I could spell. There we are. Conscious competence, incompetence. There's nothing like the first failure to bring you humility. Sam, my son, he was conscious of his incompetence immediately on driving his mother's car into my car. Initially, he's unconsciously incompetent. Now, he's consciously incompetent. And so, here we feel that we're beginning to get a sense of what it means to think through this process of discipleship. What does it, what does it mean? Here's Jesus. He's healing the sick. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's, he's taking small amounts of food and sharing them with multitudes. And then he says to his disciples, okay, guys, I'm giving you authority and power, and I want you just to do the basic stuff of discipleship. I want you to um, go and find a person of peace. I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and um, cast out demons. Good? Everybody good? And I don't know what you would have felt like, but just think of it as those first disciples. And they're thinking, are you kidding? 
we're going to do it now? Well, of course, that is the process of discipleship. And the, the, the whole point is that you get to this, this moment of conscious incompetence. Conscious incompetence. What happens next? Well, you get to conscious competence. Well, you may not be an all-singing, all-dancing version of the person that you want to be, but you have a sense right now of what it takes for you to be that person. Now, you're not just conscious of your failings, of your, of your shortcomings, of your mistakes and misdemeanors. Now, you're aware that they're ever there, those possibilities, but now you have a handle on what it means to be able to make some progress in your discipleship of Jesus. And of course, the final stage is unconscious competence. Everybody knows it. As a driver, you drive from home to work, from work to home, and you didn't think about it once. And you wonder about how many puppies you ran over on the way. Because you just didn't take any notice. No wonder we have accidents. You get home sometimes, you think, I don't even know how I got back. Because you weren't particularly conscious of the competency that you were displaying. Fortunately, it is competency that you're displaying, so you haven't run over puppies. But, but the point is this. The process of learning, first articulated for us by Abraham Maslow, incidentally, is this process that you see in the life of the disciples of Jesus and in the discipling work of Jesus with his disciples, and it's something that you see in our lives over and over again. So if you were to take that picture and simply say, okay, so let's just put some of these words on there. This is all about learning. Abraham Maslow, he, he made it very clear that, that this learning process is something you see with every person in every location, in every culture, in every stage of their development, in every age of the world's history. We have here, I hope you can see that blue. Yeah. Here. Then we have receive. Then we have see. Then we have do. So what is it then that, that is, if you like, the... The, the, the cocktail, the, the, the necessary component of the initial stages of, di of, of discipleship. Well, frankly, there's not a whole lot of qualification for the beginning stages because you're unconsciously incompetent. So you're listening, you're listening, but the most important thing is that you listen until you fall off the edge. You listen until you realize that what you've been listening to, you haven't actually received. You haven't actually 
integrated. You haven't actually assimilated. What is it that's the difference between a person that's listening and a person that's receiving? The difference is humility. You receive something because you're humble enough to learn it. Some of you will be looking at this and saying, you know, I've learned this so many times. Well, yeah, maybe you have. But if you're humble enough right now to be hearing what it is that God is saying to you, you will be receiving a fresh word from him applied to other areas of your life to which this word has never as yet been applied. Because it's when you get to this stage of conscious incompetence, which of course is if you like the exposition of what it means to be a humble-hearted person. A humble-hearted person is a person who genuinely doesn't just pretend or does the kind of the Uriah heap saying, oh, I'm a very humble man, Mr. Nickleby. No, it's not that kind of pretended pretense of humility. The real humility that looks at a situation and says, I don't think I'm competent. That kind of humility is the humility that makes it possible for the thing that's being said to be received and settled into a person's heart. But how do we go to the next step? Well, if we're going to go to the next step, we have to be committed to conscious competence. We have to get beyond the feelings of, un, of, of, of conscious incompetence that, that hold us in this place of humility. But, but if we become somewhat kind of focused and obsessive about it, we never escape from it and journey towards competency. And so, and so with with the undergirding of humility in our life, we raise our heads, we look up and we say, do you know what? I think I'm beginning to receive what I'm hearing. And in receiving what I'm hearing, what I need now is a demonstrable example of what it is that I'm receiving so that I can put it into practice. And so the desire the driving force, the passion behind conscious competence, the one step in front of the other, that is understood in the nature of watching another person. Sam, learning to drive again, would be very careful to watch me driving Perhaps up until that point, he was assuming that he was as good a driver as me anyway. He just hadn't had his test yet and hadn't been recognized by the world to be, you know, the next great world rally champion. He goes through this moment of catastrophic realization of conscious incompetence. And now he's incredibly attentive to watching me drive watching me look at all of my mirrors, watching me navigate the various different moving objects in front of me. 
Sam actually is probably the best driver in our extended family right now. I'd, I'd be more than happy to commit anyone's life into his hands if he was just driving them somewhere. He's a brilliant driver. I think the moment that he became a brilliant driver was the moment that he drove his mother's car into my car. Because from that moment, he became the person who would imitate in detail what it was that he was seeing of other good drivers around him. It's the step away from simply living in this feeling of disaster that brings about humility, and with that humility stepping forward and saying, no, I am humble enough to know that I don't know it, but I'm faith-filled enough to know that I can learn and put into practice the things that I'm learning if I'm prepared to imitate someone else. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where you become a more effective parent. This is where you become a more attentive spouse. This is where you become a better friend. This is where you become better at your job. This is where you make the difference between you being this kind of mediocre also run to becoming this champion in the eyes of the people around you and, of course, in the testimony of the great cloud of witnesses in heaven. The difference between the other runners and the victor who takes the crown is the one who has learned by the observation of other people's lives and learn to imitate what it is that they're receiving so that they see what they're receiving and thereby are enabled to put into practice what it is that they need to grow into in their life. So as a parent, it's not long before conscious incompetence comes knocking. Maybe you thought it was going to be fine. Everybody else seems to manage it. And then somewhere in maybe the third trimester and just after the birth, when you're living with the sleep deprivation and the, the lack of sense of self that you get when you feel like your whole world's been overtaken by this screaming blob that only wants to be fed and cleaned, you begin to realize that you're not competent. Generally, the way that human society has operated is that at that moment, the community gathers round, and as the African proverb has so eloquently expressed, the village raises the child. Why the village? Because the parents aren't capable. Because the, care, the parents aren't competent. They're only going to be competent when they finish the job, and so therefore, in their competence, they're going to help the next generation of parents. That's the weird thing about being a parent. You only get good at it, good at it when you get to the end of it. 
So here's the thing. You need people around you who show you what to do. And you look at maybe that young mother who's got a one-year-old and a, and a two-year-old, and you think, wow, I see how she's doing that. That's very clever. I see the way that she manages her time. I see the way that she manages the expectations of her children. I see the way that she orders her life so that there are predictable patterns, so that the children can trust when it is that they're gonna get up, when they're gonna go to bed, when they get fed, when they get changed. I see how she has this predictable pattern and it feels so much more peaceful. I thought it was cool just to have a kind of hippie freewheeling approach to it and just do whatever feels like the right thing to do next. And why does it feel like chaos and disaster every day? Well, because security grows in the presence of predictable patterns. And so you see those predictable patterns in the parents around you who've maybe made the journey a little further than you have and you begin to see the things that address your conscious incompetence. And of course, it can be devastating, that feeling. But if with that humility, you can lift your head and say, do you know what? I think God wants me to be a great parent. And if he wants me to be a great parent, probably I can be. Because it's dependent upon him much more than it's dependent upon me. So maybe what I'll do is I'll begin to look at the lives of those who are great parents around me and in whom he's obviously been doing this work just ahead of me and maybe I'll see the things that I'm beginning to receive in my heart. That's how you become a better parent. It's the way that you become a better engineer. It's the way that you become a better flower arranger. It's the way that you become a better baker. You watch other people doing the things that you want to become. That becomes the engagement, the engagement in the conscious competence. And before long, you'll get to a, a kind of an odd stage. I was, I was flying back from Canada. Sam was 16. He'd gone through the process of relearning how to drive. He was a great driver. He was probably 16 and a half at the time. We were coming back from doing a conference in Canada. Sam's a fantastic pastor and preacher and leader today down in Atlanta. But he was just about 16 and a half and the flight had been delayed and we were hanging out in the lounge and there was nowhere else to go and the, the airport was closing down and so there was nowhere else to go. There were no shops. There were no coffee shops. There we were waiting for hours. We were going to be delayed by the time we got to Chicago. We were going to have to stay over. It was all getting a bit grim. You could see the kind of the anxiety on the faces of everybody around us. And me and Sam, we were just, Sam, we were just hanging out. I don't know what we were doing. I think we were just having fun and chatting and talking and, and just shooting the breeze together. And then Sam went to the bathroom and a young man in his 20s, just sidled up beside me and he said, excuse me, sir, I think you're on the same flight as me. And I said, uh, okay. He said, I, I hope you don't mind. He said, I'm a, I'm a new father 
and I'll be going back and my wife will be there with the baby and I've just been so conscious recently of, I'm just not ready. I, I mean, I don't know how to be a dad. And I watched you and your son interacting with each other. And I don't know what it is, but I want what it is that you have. And I hope that one day, the relationship that I have with my little baby son will be something like the relationship you have with your son. Can you tell me how to do that? Well, just then we heard the announcement that the plane would be leaving in 30 minutes. And so in 30 minutes, whew. and so I, I just gave him a few pointers, suggested a, a few ideas, some things that seem to be helpful for me in guiding and governing the way in which I try to interact with my children and raise them. You see, there'll become a point when you're unconsciously competent. I wasn't thinking about being a competent parent, hanging out with Sam in that, in that waiting room. It never crossed my mind. But my unconscious competence was sufficiently on display for a young man who was consciously incompetent to come and ask me for discipleship. Now, that's going to happen to you over and over again. It's already happened to you many times. And the way that we become intentional about it is by realizing that when people begin to move from receiving into seeing, they want to see something in you that they can imitate and emulate. You're not a perfect disciple any more than I am, but you're a living disciple. You're the living example. You're not the perfect example. None of us are. People don't need perfect examples. We've already got one. It's Jesus. What we need is the living example of what it means to be a follower. Paul says this. He says, look, you've learned some things and the things that I've shared with you, you've received and you've, you've received them and you've integrated them into your life through seeing and hearing, through hearing and seeing. You've integrated them into your life. You've assimilated them into your life. Now put them into practice. And the reason he wants us to put them into practice is so that we are wise people. And if we're wise people, then we're wise representatives. And if we're wise representatives, then we are on display for others to imitate and emulate. And the process of discipleship continues. You know, that's going to be more and more of the culture of what it is that we're looking for as apexes in our gatherings, in our house churches, in our small and large gathered times, we're going to be the people who receive what it is that we're hearing, see what it is that we're receiving demonstrated in the lives of others, and then be the ones who do and put into practice what we've seen and what we've heard. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for Paul 
and his word to these first believers on European soil. We ask you, Lord, that we would be those who in our learning receive as we hear and see. And Lord, we pray that our lives as disciples would be sufficiently on display as living examples so that others can emulate and imitate your life in us. And we pray it, Jesus, for your glory because that's the only thing that's worth it in the end. Amen.